the culture that we have developed in this country for 30-something, 40 years now has been of silence. You are, you do what your coach tells you. You don't ask questions. You don't have a voice. You don't have an opinion. You're not a human being. You're an athlete. You're a gymnast. And as a gymnast, you simply do what the coach tells you to do. So when the head national team coach says, go get treatment from Larry Nassar, you go, okay, you be, you work hard, you put your head down, and you do not create waves. If you want to make those four or five coveted spots of the Olympic team, you don't make waves. Well, a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham and I'm a performance scientist by trade, which means that I've dedicated my working career to helping others to a high level of performance. And that, that whether that's an athlete or whether that's a business person, whether that's someone working in education or the arts, wherever it might be. And this podcast is very much dedicated to sharing the journeys from people who've been there and done it people who've explored it in real depth. And that's what we want to do is share some stories and some insights that might be able to help you on your particular journey. So we're in for an absolute treat over the next couple of weeks on the podcast. Um, you might have seen the routine that went viral, the gymnastics floor routine by Caitlin Ohashi. And it had so much fun, so much verve, uh, as well as devastating level of skill. And Caitlin absolutely nailed it. And and no no surprise that it absolutely went viral. So super exciting that we've got not only Caitlin Ohashi on the podcast next week, uh, but first up is Miss Val, Valerie Condos-Field, who is the coach of UCLA Gymnastics. So she coached Caitlin to that routine. So Miss Val is a ballerina originally, but she transitioned into coaching gymnastics. Uh, and we talked to her about that transition. We also talked to her about the culture of gymnastics and how that has gone rotten over the last few decades and what she would propose to do about it. She unpacks many of her philosophies, um, some of those galvanized from some real life events like surviving cancer. Um, and we talked about her new book, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance, a fantastic read. And of course, we explore that routine. So it's an absolute privilege. We, we could have talked for days and, and we actually spoke for about two hours and we've trimmed very little out. So there's a lot in here and I really hope you enjoy it just as much as I did speaking to Valerie Condosfield. Valerie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I am I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to welcome you to the Supporting Champions podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Thank you for doing this. Now, should I call you Miss Val? <laughs> um, you may. Uh, I don't really care what pe- I've said this before. I don't care what people call me as long as they call me ma'am. Um, <laughs> but the Miss Val came about because I was a ballet dancer. I was never mm. a gymnast. And early on in my coaching career here at UCLA, I was teaching our student athletes a ballet class. And one of the smart al- a- smart aleck athletes said in a very snarky tone, um, are we supposed to call you Miss Val? Because in every ballet class I took, I always had to te- call my sis- my teacher Miss So-and-so. 
<laughs> and I was like, sure, fine. Call me Miss Val. And that stuck for 36 yep. years. So, and quite honestly, when people say, hey, coach or hi, coach or call me coach, I still giggle inside because I don't feel like a coach. That's, that's interesting. So I, so it's a carryover from ballet or your previous life in some ways, but I, I saw the, the tag and I thought that's, that's lovely that, that, that still remains. Uh, mm-hmm. My eldest daughter dances and so she dances ballet and tap and, and so on. And um, when she taught the youngsters, um, she was so thrilled to, to be Miss Rosie. And mm-hmm. it was almost like a status. It was a, a, mm-hmm. uh, a sense of decorum that, that you, you stuck to that. And there was a, a sense of respect. It is a sense of respect. Yes. Yeah. With when I, uh, whenever I would hear people call John Wooden, John, instead of coach Wooden, it just, it we used to irritate me because no, no, no. He's earned the respect of coach Wooden, not John. Don't please don't call him John. <laughs> He didn't That's, mind, but I minded. We don't have that for coaching in the UK. Uh, it's don't? not the same. There's not a, not a sense of, if I was talking to a lord or a lady, then I might address them in that way. But, but mm-hmm. calling them by their title, um, I think there's something um, dutiful and respectful about that, that, um, that we should learn from that. I think that's nice. I agree. I definitely agree. So, um, so you had a career in, in ballet and a successful ballerina on stage, all the training as a youngster and performing. That's your, that's your origins. Yes. I, I studied classical ballet for 17 years, studied classical piano for that long Mm. as well. And, uh, fun fact before 1980, gymnastics floor routines could only be one instrument. And they were usually the piano. And so in 1976, I was a junior in high school, 16 years old, and I wanted a summer job. So I called up a local gymnastics facility and asked them if they needed a dance coach. And they said, we don't have money for a dance coach. And then through talking with the head coach at the time, he said, I found out that they needed a pianist for their floor routines. I said, well, I play the piano. And so they hired me to play the floor music. And that's when we had optional routines and compulsory. And a lot of times compulsory routines were played live. So that's why I started in this sport. I was 16 and I would show up at their gym and play the piano for their floor routines. How did that start then that you started having an input to the way they move as opposed to what they were moving to? Yes. And I, you know, I, I have a hard time in life keeping my mouth shut when I have an observation anyway. <laughs> And so I would start saying things like I would stop playing and I'd be like, your feet aren't pointed or your legs aren't straight or that split wasn't split. Then I start again. So then I start again. Yeah. Wow. Never been shy to give my opinion. And it's something that I've had to work on and I think I've gotten better at. So (laughs) would you you add an extra layer of aggression in your piano playing if they weren't getting it right or something? (laughs) I would just stop. I remember one time I slammed the, the piano keys. I was like rather dramatic. It's like, oh gosh, get over yourself, Valerie. So you made a comment a moment ago. Uh, I still chuckle when people call me coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but your ballet 
career was a while ago and you have been coaching for such a long time. So there's, st- there's still a sense of your origins there and almost a question about the role that you, you've been doing for a long time in gymnastics. Mm-hmm. 36 years I've been coaching. I've been at UCLA 36 years. And uh, I think one reason why I chuckle still when I am called coach is because I have thought long and hard about the importance of athletics and it's for fans. It's important to play to win. And as an athlete, it's important to play to win. But when you really look at it all, all athletics is about bragging rights. It's about being able to say, ha ha, we beat you. And then when you beat them at a certain level, then you get money for it. You get medals and medal means money. And quite often, money is the root of all evil, as we've found in our own gymnastic situation and the United States Gymnastics Federation this last few years. Uh, and so for many, many, many years, I've, con- I've approached my job in the work that I do with our student athletes as I get to give them a master class in life lessons every day. And our classroom is the gym. And if, if we teach them these wonderful hard lessons that you can really only learn through sport, you're not going to get in the classroom and we can, we can recruit some of the best talent because we're UCLA, uh, then that will translate to winning. But I focus on creating these superheroes in our gym versus how are we going to beat our opponent? And so I feel much more of a mentor a life skills mentor than I do a coach. Okay, so that aligns, to, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, that, that aligns much more to what we would call an executive coach as opposed to perhaps the yes. phys- physical coach that you have to do a certain number of repetitions, whereas a coach, the, the origin of that to, to guide people. Yes, yeah. And um, I've always understood that coaching is motivating change in someone. So if it's the life skills coach, you're helping to motivate them to think about their life differently and to think about adversity differently. In athletics, you're helping them, like in our sport, you're helping them motivate how to get their legs straight on a skill on beam. But it's all motivating change. It's not dictating change. And there's a big, big difference. A lot of coaches coach from their ego and they dictate what they want the athletes to do. They don't motivate the athletes to want to improve. And that's a big, that's a big, big part of my message that I've recently just been spewing any chance I get is that I, you look at any sport, you look at the highest level athletes that there is certainly joy infused in their training and their competing. That doesn't mean happy, silly. It's joy. It's joy from a job well done. It's joy from accepting the challenge and trying to figure out the challenge. That fills them up. And so when coaches coach from their ego, they quite often take the joy out of learning. And I just think that that's absolutely horrific. Mm. There's a... The origin of the word coach, I think, aligns to this a lot. Um, so there's two two specific meanings. There's the the coach uh, as a vehicle. Uh, so 
They were originally those those vehicles and carts were created in a town called Cox, mm. which is from Vienna between Vienna and Hungary, and it became associated with journeying with a student because they they would. I'm taking notes right now, Stephen. Okay. You you have you can have this, but I, um, <laughs> I, I I looked it up once and I thought, God, I've, I you know, is this something I should know? And so it became synonymous with the tutor journeying with the student. It wasn't about the results that they were taking in the exams in Budapest, but it became synonymous with with supporting them on that journey. Um, and I, I love the the idea that you journey with somebody as mm-hmm. opposed to instruct uh, or that you're not, you're not going to give them the answers or you can't control the result, but you're journeying with them to make the, the load easier. Right. Right. That sounds deeply sort of connected to the philosophy that you're creating. Is that exactly? Is that oh, I, does that originate? Lovely. Does that originate from ballet, or is that uh, is that something that is definable to you? Uh, I think it comes more from my faith. That uh, you know, I I've always understood, realized that God doesn't care about gymnastics, but whatever you're going to do in life, do it to the very best of your ability. And so gymnastics, like, like all sport is very, very difficult. I think gymnastics is one of the most difficult sports. And I say that because as a great athlete from another sport, well, as, as our great gymnasts are, our Olympians, our gold medalists, they can go out and play another sport. They can play basketball, football. They may be pathetic and horrible, but they can play other sports. And it doesn't matter how great of an athlete you are in another sport, you can't play gymnastics. You can't get up on the beam and flip. You can't grab that bar and go around it in a 360-degree circle. You just can't. And so the discipline, the years and years and years, the more than 10,000 hours that athletes talk about to become a, a proficient gymnast are, are really hard. And... Um, imagine how it hones your discipline and your focus and your resiliency and your relentlessness, those life lessons, like I said earlier, that you don't get in a classroom. And that's the reason why to do sport, not Mm. because anybody cares about how many medals you have. Yeah. uh, So your faith is important to you as a guide, uh, as a guide for your own, journey ahead in that sense that's what i'm hearing um it, with respect to your responsibility to these young people in in helping them grow and become something that is a is tantamount to a role model absolutely yeah and you know it starts with how you define success for yourself every day and what is that success going to look like today and then at the end of the day having some quiet time and for me, it's having quiet time with God and just going through my day. And, you know, did I work with integrity? Was I respectful to people? Did I work hard? Did I work on things I don't like to work on that don't come easily for me? Uh, did I take time to appreciate what I've been given and what I have? Do you know all the check marks? And if I can check off more of those questions than not, I've had a successful day. Okay. And then at the end of the season, if we can check off 
having more successful days during the course of our season than not, we've had a successful season regardless of where we finish on the podium. So I'm hearing your your faith aligns a lot of your values and your purpose, but also offers you a daily connection with those, uh, as well as the spirit aspect of it. Absolutely, um, because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. So if I'm only living for our national championship on April 20th, then I'm missing out on today, mm. and I may not get tomorrow. So I'm not going to waste today. I, I mean, we, we, we got very philosophical very quickly there, haven't we? So um, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting one because I, uh, people, uh, we have this strange goosebump moment when we watch sport and and we see uh, see somebody moving in a certain way or a certain rhythm, and and we have an emotional response. But I get I get excited people jumping into a sandpit or throwing a spear, um, <laughs> but they don't really serve. A purpose in terms of helping people recover from an illness or so whatever mm-hmm. it might be that they, they are relatively pointless but you're finding that the the endeavor and the, the the goal drives the development of the person first and foremost yes and when you see a great athlete and you can you can appreciate their genius and how they have honed their skills not just physically but mentally and emotionally there's you don't know how many hours they have put in that, but obviously it's been in the thousands. So you take that athlete, let's say they've won five gold medals in the Olympic Games. What, what, brings, what brings meaning to all of those medals mm-hmm. is then the message that they have once they're up on that platform. And so I don't really... Okay, great. Michael Phelps is a great swimmer and he was born to swim. I mean, anatomically, he was born for that sport and he's got more medals than anybody other Olympian. However, it's the platform with which he's, the message with which he's speaking from his platform now that is really the most important part. And when he can talk about um, his depression and he can talk about um, how he got past the hard days and, you know, it's not just because an Olympic multi-medalist that he's, it's just been rosy for him. No, it hasn't. And so the voice that he has now is what's really important, not the medals. Mm. And would you stretch that even further into, for, for redemption for some of the drug cheats, for example, that, uh, that are now looking back and regret? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I would. Yes. Uh, that's called winning at all costs. And that's not in the that's not in the vein of athletics. That's not what sports all about. That's not what my people, the Greeks, started the Olympics for. <laughs> no, that's your that's get, your origins. It's my origin. We were supposed to all get naked and go compete <laughs> outside. <laughs> well, isn't that isn't that the definition of gymnastics? The house of naked ne- exercise, which yes. in itself would which would uh, get you arrested <laughs> these days. Um, so let me ask you about your transition to that career then, because whilst you you had this uh, vocal pianist chipping in about pointing toes and and landing and so on, um, what that couldn't have been an easy step change for you. Did you know? I, I can't imagine you just went, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, that's fine. I'll just be great at that as well. <laughs> um, taking on the mantle of coaching a different sport 
with a different background and not knowing the sport with the technical understanding of what it takes to perform a certain type of maneuver. How was that for you? Well, I think one gift that I had early on in my head coaching career. So I was an assistant coach here for five years. I was the choreographer and the um, dance coach. And then I graduated and I was going to become a journalist, but I still was choreographing for the gymnastics team. And then the athletic director called me in and said, we're going to make a change with our head coaching position. We want you to be the next head coach. And I laughed in her face and I said, you know, I don't know the first thing about gymnastics. And she said that she had observed how I worked with student athletes. She liked the fact that I was tough with them, but I was compassionate. And then she said, I trust you'll figure the rest out. And that's all I got. But one of the best gifts I had was I couldn't have an ego. So I had to ask a hundred questions every day. I had to hire really good people to fill in the gaps that I didn't have, which was the gymnastics part. Um, and I think that I have, that's how I started coaching my head coaching career. And that's still how I coach today. But I, I, I mean, every, that, that is exactly how I coach. I don't tell the athletes what they should do. I ask them, how did it feel? What'd you feel on that? What were you thinking on that? How'd you shift your mental game? Because that routine was amazing. What were you thinking about? And I constantly ask them. I constantly ask our other coaches, what are you seeing? This is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? And I just, I mean, I just believe that no one is the perfect combination of anything in life, including coaching. And if you have this wealth of knowledge just within your coaching staff, but also with the athletes, you should use it. You're going to get a better product out of it. Um, that was one thing. And the other thing that is, has really dictated the course of my life is that I wasn't brought up with a fear of failure. Um, I was very blessed to have parents that didn't, I mean, if I didn't get a ballet role, it wasn't, it wasn't like I lost the part. It was like, oh, wow, what's the ballet part? What's the ballet about? Well, what, what you could be doing in it? Oh, wow, that's great. The, your friend Robin, she got the part. That's awesome. Um, when I would, I remember so vividly being at home, a beautiful laid out dinner for the holidays. And my mother was relating a story and I spilled my milk. Literally, don't cry, we spilled milk. I spilled my milk all over this beautiful laid out table. And she didn't miss a beat. She kept telling her story. She reached down. She got some napkins. She started cleaning up the milk and cleaning it all up. And nobody even acknowledged the fact that I had spilled milk all over the dining room table. And I remember that so vividly because I just don't believe in the concept of failure. I don't believe that word exists. Um, and when my student athletes try to prove me wrong and they say, you know, I just fell off the beam. I failed to make that skill correctly to stay on the beam. And I say, well, what did you learn in the process? And they said, well, I didn't push out of my legs hard enough. I said, great. So you learned something, right? Well, how can it be failure if you've actually learned something along the process? It can't be. The word doesn't exist. So not just erase the word, but erase the concept. And I, when I look back on why, one reason I've had so much success is that I don't believe in failure. 
And when I make a mistake, I have no problem admitting to it, apologizing for it if need be, and moving on. Mm. Oh, there's a lot in there. So, um, gosh. Uh, so what I'm hearing there is when you first took up that role, you took, you acknowledged what you could and what you couldn't do. Uh, you got curious about the recipe. You were consulting widely with people. Uh, you were filling the gaps saying, I can't do this bit. Can somebody help me with it? Um, I think sometimes, and I can imagine almost from, a, from the position of thinking, when I was the assistant coach, I was choreographing, um, and I'm from a ballet background, not knowing the full sport and, and the ins and outs almost was an advantage, but also was a lesson in leadership of how you would consult. Because sometimes when you take up a role because you're the next in line or you're the, you're the most senior or experienced or an ex-athlete taking up a role, you, you might just try and think you're bulletproof and invulnerable and not consult, not fill the gap. Sounds like a leadership lesson that you, you were curating there. Absolutely. And vulnerability was a, is a great word to use. I could not help but be vulnerable because I had no idea what I was doing um, in any way, shape or form. Because it's not even that I didn't know the sport. I'd never played sports. So I, hadn't, I didn't know how to organize team meetings and what to say to athletes before they compete and what to do in a pre-meeting with them. And I just, there was so much that I had to figure out. And it's important for me to share that I made a massive, grave mistake my first few years as a head coach in doing, I did the only thing I knew how to do, and that was mimic other coaches. I thought the best way for me to learn was to mimic what other coaches did. And since I grew up on stage, basically acting, I could act like a coach. Right. So I took all of these paradigms of what I thought a coach was. And in that, in that time, the eighties, you didn't talk about bringing joy to the process. You didn't talk about enjoying the work or loving your athletes or all that. It was tough talking, hard nose, black and white, no questions asked, basically a very, very tough dictator type of paradigm that I had in my mind of what a coach was. So that's what I became. And I remember acting like that and chuckling inside going, oh, you are so not believable right now. But that's all I knew. And we did really badly the first few years that I took over. And I was on my way to resign, actually, and um, the third year. And I was walking through our student store, our student union, and I happened upon a book by the great coach John Wooden. And it was a book on leadership. And it magically opened up to his definition of success. And now Coach Wooden had won 10 national championships in 12 years. He was hailed as the greatest coach that's ever lived in any sport. And so I'm reading his definition of success, and it says success is peace of mind. And basically paraphrased, and knowing you've done your best. And I kept reading it because I'm like, no, as a coach, success is winning. I am hired to win. My job depends on me winning. So I read his, his definition of success. Success is peace of mind, which is a direct result in knowing you've done your best. And I read it over and over and over again. And finally, I had the biggest aha moment of my life. Success is peace of mind in knowing you have done 
your best. I had tried been trying to be somebody else. And in that moment, I had such clarity that whenever you try to be somebody else, you will always be a second rate them. You will never be as good at them being them as they are. And the worst part about it is it prevents you from becoming a first rate you. So I went back to my office. I didn't resign. And I thought, what do I bring to the table? I have 17 years of classical ballet training. I'm coaching gymnasts. What are the similarities here? And it's like, well, there were a lot of similarities. They work through pain. I work through pain. They had to focus really hard to learn how to execute skills. I learned how to do that. I know what it's like to be a young girl going through puberty and having to get into a leotard. I knew about body shaming. I knew knew about disordered eating. I knew about all of the things that are inherent in a sport, a performance sport like gymnastics, dance, skating. I lived those. And most of all, I knew how to prepare myself well enough emotionally, mentally, and physically so that when I was waiting in the wings, I was calm but excited and confident to go on stage. And as I translated that to our gymnasts, they're waiting in the wings, is standing there waiting for the judge to salute them for the, before they mount the, the apparatus on the event. And in that moment, I realized I can coach them in that area of, of their mental game and preparedness as well, if not anybody else in the country. All I had to do was get people to coach in the, all the areas I couldn't do, which was the gymnastics part of it. And at that moment, I was like, I can do this job and I can do it really well. And so I just started being true to myself. I forgot trying to mimic other coaches. I, I am a voracious reader, so I have gleaned a lot, but it, I've always translated it to what rings true with, with me and myself. And we started having success that started translating to our student athletes doing really well. And like I said, I'm at UCLA. I can recruit some of the best athletes in the world. We're going to win. That started translating to winning. And shortly after that, a few years after that, one of my seniors said to me, Miss Val, you have finally become a leader worth following because you are believable and you're being Mm -hmm. true to yourself. And even when you make a mistake, It's easy to continue following you because you have the humility to apologize for it and figure out how we're going to move on and make that, not make that same mistake. I was like, that was powerful. Mm, Well, that's, um, that's amazing to to hear you say that as a leader in sport in your own right, somebody that a lot of people will be listening into that would be looking up to and role modeling that vulnerability and frank, honest reflection um, I think it's rare these days. It's too much shrouded in ego that people feel like they need to uh, present a, a version, a facade that that is unquestionable and it's powerful and it and it and it doesn't uh, it doesn't make people feel connected or empathic. Um, so your lessons there about not accepting the authentic, being authentic to yourself, allowed you to to stop the limitation in your own growth you could unlock you a bit more that's what i'm hearing as the big the big lesson but also that really there was a sense from the your the people that you're working with that they felt relieved and empowered as well absolutely um 
last year is a perfect example of this, <clears throat> our season. Um, I hire really good people. I make sure that we all have the same philosophical foundation and base of why we're coaching, what we want to accomplish with our student-athletes that year, how we're going to go about doing it. Um, I make sure that we all come from a place of positivity. It's, And I'm not saying it's all fun and games. There is tough love. But it, it never is degrading or insulting or disrespectful to the student-athletes, ever. And once you get that base, then I believe you trust the people that you hire. And they're there because they're fulfilling a gap in something that I don't bring to the table. Otherwise, I wouldn't need them. The only reason you need a coach in your life is to help you do things you can't do on your own. And so the only reason I need assistant coaches is to do the things that I can't do on my own. So last year at the national championships, we were in fourth place, the whole meet. After two events, we're in fourth place and we have uneven bars and balance beam to go. And I am I am not one to give locker room speeches. I That's not my forte. I do all that work during the week and I just kind of let them celebrate all their hard work in the meet. So we were in the locker room on a by rotation before our last two events. And our one of our assistant coaches, Chris Waller, was out in the arena and he was looking at our competition and he looked up the scoreboard and he said he had a rain man moment when he realized that nobody of the other teams were having a breakout meet. And if we by chance could PR, could bring our personal best, make a personal record on bars and beam. There was the slightest of chance we could win this meet. And he came in the locker room and just said, I want to say something. I said, great. And he gave the most empowered speech that he just came from his heart. And it just galvanized our athletes. And they went out. Sure enough, we PR'd on bars and we went to balance beam. And we had to average a 995 every event. We have every athlete. We have six athletes compete. You take the top five scores. We had to average a 9.95 with all of those athletes. And let me put this in perspective. Of all the other five teams, there was not one 995 score given on any event. We had to average five. And we did. And we ended up winning the meet. And our sports psychologist came up to me a little bit later. And he said, you won this meet because your ego didn't get involved because there were so many coach head coaches out there that would not let their assistant coach take over a locker room like that. And I think that's a big, big lesson for people in leadership roles. You surround yourself with people because you trust them. If you don't trust them, then don't have them on your staff. And if you do trust them, then in moments like that, you need to put your hands up, take your hands off the wheel and and let them take charge. That's a wonderful story. I, I, I love that. Being able to tell somebody or allow somebody the space to to share the insight, but deliver that with passion to to affect a result in that way. Right. That's inc- it's it's um it's slightly rare to have this open, free, uh, empowering uh, view in sport, uh, not, not, not necessarily in sport, but, but in gymnastics, it has a history of, of, uh, I guess military regime, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, certainly or- originating, uh, 
in Eastern Europe and mm -hmm. Russia and Soviet states. Right. That seemed to be the sort of protocol. And then uh, Asia had its wave of, of excellence, again, yep. coming from, from, from that hard, brutal uh, drilling of, of, mm -hmm. the, of people. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think it's still relevant now or do you think uh, you've got a completely different view? Do you think there's still pockets of that that's, that still exist around? Oh, there absolutely are. And I think that one reason is because, especially in the sport of gymnastics, they are good at such a young age. You're looking at seven, eight, nine, ten year olds that where you can see this phenom and you've got to drill in them these skills that are really difficult at such a young age. And it's natural to be fearful in learning these skills. And so you've, I mean, that the, the natural tendency as a coach is just to be tough on them and not give them an out. You're going to get up on the beam and you are going to do that very difficult skill. And the consequence is the wrath of me. So my wrath is worse than you crashing up on beam. That's basically how they coach. Um, but I think the, the other side of that is, and I talk about this in my book, I just think that it's so much easier to coach from your ego. It's so much easier to only focus on the athlete and not the human being that is the athlete. It's so much easier to not develop their inner voice and their emotional maturity. It's so much easier to strip that, let's strip them of who they are and just impart this rigid athletic training. And then you create this fabulous army of robots that go out and perform gymnastic skills at the highest level. And if you're a country like the United States and you're very rich with the numbers that you have, that's always been the case for us. We've won Olympics because we can afford to lose athletes in with injury. Other countries don't have that luxury that we do. We do. And so, um, and it's not just gymnastics. It's more prevalent and it's more visible in gymnastics, I think partly because they're good at such a young age. Right. Um, but it's in all sport and it's just so much easier to come in and be a, a hard nosed dictator and to walk around pompously and to use all the athletes as the pawn to elevate you to be the hierarchy and the, and the king or the queen. And it's, that's not what our job is. <clears throat> our job is to develop superheroes. Our jobs as coaches is to go on this journey with this young person and help them not just physically, but mentally and emotionally be super, super strong and invincible. So when they go out in the world, they're going to make a very powerful, positive influence on whatever um, area they'll go into. Now, I mean, you mentioned your book there, and I want to talk to you about that. So that that's Life is Short, uh, Don't Wait to Dance. And it's, a, it's a fabulous read. I've started reading it. I'm, I'm already hooked. Um, but, but there's a huge amount in there that, uh, that you've just un, unpacked there. So um, I, I'm trying to summarize that. I'm hearing that it's easy. Uh, it's the lazy, it's the lazy mm -hmm. way to do it, um, which speaks to 
the almost the struggle or the intent or the forethought or the care that requires emotion and and connecting with how you work as opposed to just insisting on what you're doing and that is one of our key mantra areas that that i think this performance has been unlocked wholeheartedly in the uk because we've been attentive to the how Mm -hmm. how are we doing this how are we turning up on a day-to-day basis how are we Mm -hmm. affecting an athlete's behavior with our own demeanor how are we effective as a team behind that team as opposed to what are the determinants of the biomechanics of a certain spin movement or whatever it might be um but i I don't it's not as you say it's not easy definitely it's not easy having those uncomfortable conversations or taking the time or or having your own impatience dominate your own inner inner dialogue that's that's not the easy route but it it feels like the right route it is it is and i challenge all coaches um to take a moment and decipher your why. Why are you doing this today? Why are you coaching? Do you want do you want the medal? Do you want the bragging rights? Do you want the money that comes with that? Is that your why? And if that's your why, then your how will be done through dictating. But if your why is to help this young person be a better version, stronger version mentally, emotionally, physically of themselves today by 1% today, then that will change how you help motivate, AKA coach that young person. Hmm. That's wonderful. I'm going to be replaying that later after we finish this interview. I'm going to be replaying (laughs) that statement. That's, that's a, that's a gem. So so gymnastics has been through some difficulties recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, globally um yep. so uh, in the uk there's accusations of bullying which is i think that needle where it it has been pushed too hard mm-hmm. that the results have come from driving people but but it's spilled over too far and athletes have put their hand up but equally in the u.s with the sexual abuse cases mm-hmm. um gymnastics feels like it's in a place where it needs to be recovered a bit mm-hmm. i agree and i wholeheartedly believe that uh, it's just not going to take long. We need, we need to educate not just coaches, but parents to redefine success in our young boys and girls. And it can't be all about standing on the first place podium. It has to be about the journey and about what today looks like. That success has to be defined today. And as when I do speak with parents, I say, you know what? We need to all wake up because this generation is reporting more, more reports of loneliness, depression, anxiety, stress, suicide than ever before in our history. And when you talk with this generation, whether it is you agree with it or not, it is real for them. And we are seeing the negative results of this. And so how do we, how do we parent better and how do we coach better? And I believe it is through education, um, understanding what the psyche goes through. And it's like, when you look at our, you look at a lot of coaches of, I know in gymnastics, they coach the athlete the same when they're 10 years old as when they're 15 year old, but 
But that's a totally different human being you're coaching. But you're coaching them exactly the same way. And um, I, I feel very strongly that we in the United States, with our gymnastics program, we have a responsibility globally to show that you can develop some of the best athletes in the world um, through a positive, healthy environment. And we have to model that for the rest of the world because the, the mess that we've gotten ourselves into is horrific. The number of young girls that have been abused is absolutely unconscionable. So uh, it, I, I think I, I, maybe I was just expecting you to, to point out what was wrong. Um, but I, it's answers... very simple. Oh, it's very simple. Mm. Very, very simple. Metals. Okay. We, but... we brought in Marta Caroli. We brought in Bella and Marta from Romania, right? All they knew was that Eastern European way of coaching. That's all they knew. Okay, it's not their fault. We brought them over. We put them in the position of our national team coaches. And guess what? They wanted autonomy. Don't tell them how to do things. Don't bring people into their inner circle. They had a vice president that was there within the majority of the time. And they had the doctor, Larry Nassar, that was there. And so the president of the United States Gymnastics Federation didn't want to rock that boat. So he protected Marta Caroli. I absolutely, absolutely do believe Marta did not know what that doctor was doing to the girls. I, nobody, none of the girls believe she knew. None of them. However, the girls, the athletes, the young girls did not have an avenue to tell anyone. They had nobody to say this is kind of weird because nobody wanted to rock the boat. Nobody was in that inner circle with Marta Caroli. And the only avenue you had to get to the Olympic team was through the Caroli Ranch. So you shut up and you dealt with it because that's how you were going to get on the Olympic team. So when I asked Steve Penny, who was the president, we were in the UK for the 2012 Olympic Games. And I said, why do we let Marta Caroli get away with so much verbal and emotional abuse? And he looked at me like I was nuts. And he said, because she wins, Val. And I said, at what cost, Steve? It's very simple. Hmm. So you call Martin Belli Caroli out in your um, in the in the first few words of your book, actually, and um, about that v- verbal and emotional abuse. But specifically, you hear you're drawing on that that whilst they didn't necessarily know what Larry Nasser was doing to these young gymnasts, what you're suggesting there, and I can certainly connect with the idea that that there was oppression of feedback or questioning that, that you almost had to they were imposing a veil of silence on these young young women so they couldn't speak up even if they thought it was wrong no they couldn't speak coaches. up if they thought it they couldn't speak up if they thought it was wrong with the tumble that they were trying to practice uh, or the way they were were practicing uh, but equally the conditions outside they couldn't speak up there was a silence there right right and, and you just, you dealt with it because the culture that we have developed in this country for 30-something, 40 years now has been of silence. You are, you do what your coach tells you. 
you don't ask questions, you don't have a voice, you don't have an opinion. You're not a human being, you're an athlete, you're a gymnast. And as a gymnast, you simply do what the coach tells you to do. So when the head national team coach says, go get treatment from Larry Nassar, you go, okay. That's what you do. And that's what, and even their personal coaches, you know, they, there was just, they, like when I've asked some of the girls, you know, on our team and the girls, the alumni that have come forward as victims, I'm like, why didn't you ever say anything to your coaches? And they said, it just, that was part of the culture. You just don't buck the system. You don't, you be, you work hard, you put your head down and you do not create waves. If you want to make those four or five coveted spots of the Olympic team, you don't make waves. Hmm. And that doesn't create superheroes that creates fragile products. Yeah. That ultimately is not a, it's not something that we can stand behind to be proud of a system that does that. No. And if that's what sport represents, um, and and I and certainly I can recognise where the UK system has, has tilted a little bit too far, uh, that the public pushes back a little bit and thinks, well, this isn't right. And sport acting is a barometer for what is right and wrong in the world in mm-hmm. many ways, and mm-hmm. we can't let these conditions these conditions fester. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were vocal before this all broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been vocal for many years and I, um, my mistake was I didn't keep trying to get to somebody to make change. You know, I've, I've said the 36 years I've been here, we've had so many elite athletes that have come from the national team that have all said the same thing, not about Larry Nassar because nobody even knew to talk about that until the last two years. But um, yeah, at UCLA anyway, but just about, you know, they would all say the same thing, that they're stripped of their voice. They're made to be robots. They are, they are um, verbally abused. They are, I mean, Caitlin Ohashi was told you look like a fat bird that can't fly when she was 12. Okay. Um, and and I would complain to anybody that would listen to me, but I never took it to the Senate or to the USOC or to someone, you know, and that's my bad on that. Um, but, and the naysayers, the people that just think that I'm pontificating on this platform of mine that I have now is the naysayers say, think that I want all training to be joyful and jolly and fun and dancing. It's like, no, when you have the heart of an athlete, you want to be challenged every single day. You don't want your coach to tell you if it's, if it's, it's good, if it's not good, that is so insulting. You want the tough love. You want to be pushed, but you can do that respecting the human that they are. Hmm. So, to get the range of motion that uh, gymnast needs to be able to perform the moves that they do, uh, to to do that drop split that Ohashi does, mm-hmm. that that's not comfortable. Uh, so you still have to have the you still have to you still have to push when mm-hmm. your body is telling you no, this isn't good, this is this is tough, or I want to stop. Uh, but you're talking about 
creating that fire and that motivation rather than um, rather than a military dictatorship of of just enforcing instructing somebody mm-hmm. yeah we don't need to strip them of who they are and Caitlin's last year as an elite she had a bulging disc <clears throat> basically a broken like back that she competed at the American Cup on and so but the kids never had an they never felt comfortable saying you know this really hurts and you know, with our athletes, it's like, okay, first of all, if in any type of physical activity, there's going to be pain, right? I would take off my point shoes and there would be blood everywhere from the blisters. But my foot wasn't broken. My ankle wasn't sprained. It was blisters. Can I put my point shoes back on and do a whole nother ballet? Yeah, and it's going to hurt a lot. But there's a difference between pain and injury. And it's, you know, we, we, we treated our, our young gymnasts with such disrespect as people. And all of the ones that I've spoken to have just said, you know, the worst thing, honestly, wasn't living through it. The worst thing is when you were no longer of service and of value to them as one of these athletes that could meddle, which means money. When you were no longer in that realm, it was, you were forgotten. You were, and they call it the after. Nobody cares about you in the after. Even if you're at the Caroli Ranch, even if you're taking three or four days out of your week to go down there to be coached by the national team coach, you're not even looked at because you don't matter anymore. You have so little value that you don't matter as a human, let alone as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Or I should say as an athlete, let alone as a human, whichever one comes first for them. Um, so there's just, you know what, that's so archaic to me, that way of coaching, is that way of parenting, anything is so archaic that we need to get our egos out of it and we need to realize that we're, we're helping to raise and develop children so that they can make this world a better place. How are we going to do that? Not by, not by being militaristic. If you want that, go into the military. So you're talking there about respect and um, and a, a social responsibility to these people that put their lives or their bodies on the line and their minds on their line to perform on the the, the highest stage and represent their country. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not good enough just to think that we can just collect debris, just sweep them away at the end of it. We have mm-hmm. to we have to protect the the whole human, but also we have to protect the whole experience. A perfect example of this: a very sad example of this and any of your listeners that know gymnastics will kind of have a sad moment here is Kyla Ross who's on our team now she's a 2012 Olympic gold medalist she competed for the United States internationally for seven years and a quite astonishing fact is she never finished lower than third internationally so every time she competed she medaled So as we well know, all medals come with money. She didn't take a dime because she maintained her NCAA eligibility. So the USAG got all that money. Um, But in order for her to accomplish that feat, you have to be a very dedicated athlete, right? So her last time 
at the ranch. So she made the 2012 team. She was training to make the 2016 team. And she deferred coming to UCLA a year with the hopes of making that team. Well, Kyla was five foot two when she was in the 2012 Olympic Games, and now she's five seven. So she was trying to work with this new body. <clears throat> she was at the ranch and she was trying to do a very, very difficult vault, uh, your Yurchenko your double twist. And she was really struggling with it. And Marta Caroli screamed at her in front of everyone that she was lazy. And she turned to her coach and she said, I'm done. And that's how she ended her illustrious career for our country by being screamed at by this woman who had reaped the benefits of all that she had given for years and years and years that she was lazy. And Kyla said, it didn't bother me what she, that, that it came from her. It bothered me that she embarrassed me in front of all my teammates and other coaches. And she goes, I didn't deserve that. She's done. Yeah, so I mean uh, that's that's very similar to people being called fat, as you say, a reference to body type, body image that mm -hmm. that is a that, that ultimately you know there's a better way of communicating I, that. I would like to qualify the statement that I just made. I honestly don't blame Marta. Marta is a product of how she was raised in Romania and how she was coached and the success that they had and how they coached in Romania. Yeah, okay. So I don't blame her. And in her defense, she says everything she's ever done was to only make them stronger. I believe that she believes that. Okay. So she was indoctrinated in a certain way of thinking that actually got results. It got results there. It got results in the U S um, but wasn't able to see a different way. Uh, and it sounds like you're pioneering a different way of thinking and campaigning widely. Um, but back to my original question, your answer was about educating parents. And what I loved about that is that, that you're taking the responsibility. So your immediate thought was, what can we do to resolve this? What's the solution to take her, our sport and, and gymnastics as a platform for making, making gymnastics good again? So what can we do? Yes. And I, that really became clear to me this summer. I was in Washington, D.C., and I spoke with some people in the House of Representatives, and I spoke with um, Senator Dianne Feinstein. And everybody was asking the same question. How do we, how do we change this culture in gymnastics? And it was so clear. It's like, it's not just gymnastics. It is all sports, and it starts in the home. It's, it starts with parents who will win at all costs with their young boys and girls. Um, it, car it starts with how we define success. And like you and I were speaking earlier, as a parent, what is your why with your, with your daughter or son? And what is your how then? And how are you going to do that? And, if, and so many um, athletic parents, they, they are substantiated of, of being a good parent by how their child does. It's all about them and the reflection on them of being a good parent. I mean, I'm not saying this eloquently, but if their daughter or son wins, oh, yeah. then they're a great parent. 
And if their son or daughter misses the final shot that lost the game, it's a direct reflection on them. Get yourself out of it, parents. Get your egos out of it. Just like we coaches have to get our egos out of it. We're not here to fix our children. Children are here to actually help us become better versions of ourselves. And if you look at it that way, as they are then a mirror of ourselves and how we can be better versions of ourselves instead of just dictating having to fix them, that's how we start changing the culture. And in your book, you refer to uh, uh, Jeanette Mm -hmm. being in the desert. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting metaphor, uh, being in the desert. So just, just unpack that for us a little bit, because... I'm interested to to ask you about how we get out of the desert here because you you reference a few few ideas but being in the desert to me sounded like you're lost uh you don't know where you are you're uh you're searching but but you you're you have no no oasis to go to is that what you meant by the well, desert Well being in the desert absolutely everything you said you're lost you don't know how to get out all of that but you're also a victim That's the worst part about being in the desert. That's why you don't get out of the desert because you can't help yourself get out of the desert because why me? Why does it always happen to me? Why does, why does life always throw me the bum things? Why can't I ever be just blessed? Why me? Why me? Why me? So you end up in this circular path in the desert and um, to get out of the desert, you need to sit quietly. And I, explain this in the book as well. Um, one of the, one of the things that I have learned from our, um, gleaned from our sports psychologist that is so prevalent in my mind every day is that in order to listen, whether it be to yourself or to someone else, you have to silence your mind. And when you rearrange the letters in the word, listen, it spells silent. And it's just such a great, thing to remember because the way to get out of the desert is you need to sit quietly and you need to say, why am I perpetually feeling like this? What am I doing? And what am I not doing? And so for me, when I get in the desert, I've usually been disrespectful or said something unkind or gossiped about another person that I is just eating me up. I just can't stand it. Or I've been a slob with myself. I haven't eaten well. I've drank too much wine. I haven't worked out. Um, I'm not taking time to meditate and pray. I mean, it's one or all a combination of all those things. It's usually it's a combination because it's a cyclical pattern that will happen. And so you just go stop okay, become silent in my mind and let's hit that refresh button of what my goal is going to be tomorrow. What's, what's one thing I can do tomorrow to get me one step out of this desert? And it's usually wake up and have a healthy breakfast, drink more water than coffee, get some type of physical exercise in today and make sure that when I'm speaking with people, I'm talking with people, we're having an animated conversation that I pause and I really don't speak until I know what I want to say. And I, and I, I take ownership of my words 
Because when you get into a fun situation and people are talking and gossiping and making jokes and this and that, that's when the snarky comments come out or that's when the gossip happens. And those are the things that make me feel horrible about myself. So I don't want to do that. So how am I going to do that? I'm going to slow down. So tomorrow, I'm not going to take one massive leap out of the desert, but I'm going to take one step towards getting out of the desert. I'm going to hit that refresh button constantly. So in the, in the book, you talk about discipline and determination, but you're talking about there about your own discipline and determination, about contemplating, putting in good high-performance habits, respecting sleep, nutrition, rest, exercise, so that you can better serve other people. Yes. Yeah. Because that's I'm, I'm not naturally, naturally inclined to discipline. And when I tell people that, they think, that I'm being um, self-destructive dialogue, but I'm not, I really am not. I am not, I think that I am basically a lazy person. (laughs) (laughs) I I know, I I do so much during my day, but I love sitting on the couch in my pajamas and knitting and watching football. I mean, I just love it. Um, I've never ever enjoyed getting up early I am not someone that loves to go work out. Um, And I love pasta and wine. So that's like. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by lazy though? Because, because um, again, this sort of antiquated, quite old fashioned view of the swim coach that's, that's there at four o'clock in the morning before everybody else. And they're the last to leave. And that that's some sort of badge of honor as mm-hmm. opposed to the quality that they bring, the right. energy that they bring. the the If you're talking about getting yourself into the best place possible, that takes time. But rather that, that you're a, a, a 9 to a, a 10 out of 10 on a day-to-day basis than, than a 5 out of 10, but you're always there. But I feel like my lazy habits they have repercussions that don't allow me to do my job as well as I should. Even like okay. now I'm pitching all of these shows and TV shows and Broadway shows and all that. I need to be on my game when I'm in that meeting. Well, I'm not going to be on the game when I'm in that meeting. If I haven't really had a productive day in the gym in the morning with our student athletes, well, I'm not going to have a productive day in the gym with our student athletes. If I was up all night reading my favorite book or had one too many glasses of wine or haven't worked out, at least a few times this week. So the lazy part comes from, if you were to say, okay, Valerie, you get salmon and broccoli or pasta with squid and calamari and an octopus. Okay. I want that. <laughs> you could have yeah, me too. Yeah. Nice, nice water. You can have water or you can have uh, a wonderful glass of Chardonnay. Okay. I would want that. That's the lazy part for me is that I just, sometimes I go, screw it. I want, I want that. And how do you manage that on a day-to-day basis? Is that, is that just being particular about when and where you let the the pressure cooker off a little bit and, and that yeah. you really indulge and yourself? I think it also comes back to, as I said, sitting quietly with yourself and taking some inventory. Because it's like right now sitting with you here, my back is killing me. Why is my back killing me? Because I've only had worked out twice in three weeks. I work in a gym, for God's sake. I can work out in there. I can stretch. I don't need to be feeling like this. 
That's all on me. So I can be in the desert and, oh, poor me, I'm 59 years old. My back hurts. My knees hurt. My hips hurt. Or I can do something about it and stop bitching about it. Okay. Lazy is I'm not Jordan Weaver. Jordan loves to get up in the morning and go for a run. I do not enjoy that. I hate to run. I'm not going to do that. So what are you going to do? Because you can't just, or you can sit around and complain about your back hurting. And this is the point, Stephen. Thank God I can do something about it. Because there are a lot of people out there that can't do anything about it. That physically are in so much pain or have an ailment. They can't. I can't. So stop complaining about it, Valerie, and do something. I get this strong sense of appreciation that you're deeply connected with uh, the things you value and that you're lucky to have that that is so much forgotten these days. But by the way, do you need to get up and move about and stretch? No, no, the pain is good. It's making me realize when I get off the phone with you that I'm going to go work out. No, but what you that just sounds said, like that sounds like ballet shoes again. Exactly, the point shoes. I'm going to put on the bloody point my bloody point shoes. And what you just said um, is a big, big, big part of how one reason for our success here at UCLA, and that is <clears throat> the gratitude. And um, it's true. I'm upset with myself that my back hurts right now because I can do something about it. I, I have a very dear friend right now who's trying to walk, Kristen McAllister, and they've told her she's never going to walk again. And she's a beautiful 24-year-old ex-gymnast that just had a horrible disease attack her spine. Um, so guess what? I can walk. I can work out. And when we're in the most days in the gym, uh, we start workouts at 745. And I like to start each morning workout with them just closing their eyes and giving just one or two things of gratitude of things that they have not earned. And so getting back to me and my back that's sore, I have a very strong mind and a very strong body. Neither one of those I earned. I was born with them. So I'm very appreciative of the fact that I can go work out, even if though I don't want to. And then we always finish with um, the fact that let's give some gratitude to the people that have protected our freedom, that we as women get to do sports in a leotard, scantily clad, right? We get to play sports in our country. Let's give a thank you to all the people that have preserved that right for us. And now let's go about our day. And every time we start workout with that, gratitude their workout is better is more intentional Hmm. there's aspects there where you talked earlier about failure and failure doesn't exist but but you're talking there about taking the lessons out of every situation so i'm not surprised you've succeeded because the the trajectory the the learning curve is going to can be continually steep and and it's almost how is sensing that you're you're enjoying the struggle, mm-hmm. the, the difficult bits. You're, you've mm-hmm. got a sense of enjoyment about those, mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as as well as recognizing they're going to be tough. But yeah. what can we what can we do to to maximize the situation? Yeah, that's called life, and that's life is fun. And I don't like it when people say that life is simply a journey because a journey to me is like frolicking through the the meadow. But life is one massive adventure. 
and there's going to be boulders thrown in your way and earthquakes and all these things that are going to happen. And the fun part about life is to figure out how to get past the boulder. So, you know, four years ago, I'm diagnosed with breast cancer and I was like, okay, here we go. This is going to be one of the most impactful years of my life because I'm going into battle mode and cancer does not have a chance against me and my positive attitude. So take that. So, okay, let's, let's, um, let's, let me ask you about the, the breast cancer. So four years ago, and can I just ask then you've developed this deep appreciation outlook that you're transmitting to, to your community was that galvanized or was that a product or was that always there uh, before your cancer uh, erupted? It was there before my cancer erupted because uh, I've always had a very deep appreciation for life and I have a very strong growth mindset. Like I'm really, I want to live to be really old because there's so much to learn and accomplish on earth. Um, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of how I'm going to die, but I'm really not afraid of death. The only reason why I want to live longer is because it's so much fun to figure stuff out. Um, and then when I was diagnosed um, <clears throat> and I got off the phone with the doctor and. Could, could you just tell us how, how you found out? Cause yeah. uh, that, again, that would be helpful for yeah. people. I was um, driving and my doctor called me and she said, um, you driving? I said, yep. She goes, can you pull off the road for a minute? I'm like, well, this isn't good. And she told me that I have, a very aggressive form of breast cancer and that she needed to see me immediately. So she said, come in the next day. I said, okay. So I got off the phone and I was numb because the only time I was 54 at the time, the only time that I had dealt with cancer in my lifetime was my mother who had died 25 years prior to a horrific, horrific bout with um, colon cancer, very painful, dehumanizing, horrible. And so that's where my mind went. And I was like, okay, I got to gear up for this battle. And in that moment, I heard very, very clearly, be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And whether you and your listeners translate that to cosmic energy or the universe, whatever, however people want to translate that, that hear my story, I translated it as God speaking to me and saying, be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And I heard it twice and I went home and I told my husband the not so great news about, uh, the breast cancer. And I said, but get this, I heard very clearly be anxious for nothing and grateful for all things. And he said, it's from the Bible. Well, I grew up Greek Orthodox. Our Bible was in ancient Greek. I hadn't read the Bible. Okay. <laughs> so I go to the Bible. <clears throat> sure enough, in Philippians 4, it says, be anxious for nothing. And then paraphrased and grateful for all things. And at the moment, my world stops. And I realize that I heard this before I ever read it. This is a commandment. And just like anything in life, it's a choice. And I can choose to obey or not obey. And in that moment, I chose to obey, but I didn't know how I was going to obey because I just got diagnosed with a potentially fatal disease. 
So I went to the doctor the next day and the oncologist, and she says to me, you have gone from having the worst type of breast cancer to having the best type. Because had you been diagnosed 10 years prior, we had nothing for you. Now, if you choose, there's that word again, if you choose to get chemotherapy for a year and surgery, we know it will work. And at that moment, I understood the commandment of how I was not going to be anxious by being grateful that I lived at a time that had chemotherapy that would help me and that I live in a country that has the chemo and that I have a job that's going to help me pay for the chemo. So I didn't have to get chemo. I got to get chemo. I get to get chemotherapy. And so I called it my chemo spa because a spa is someplace you go to feel better. <laughs> and That's, the, that's about the most positive reframe I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and my student athletes would say, Miss Val, you don't have to put such a positive spin on it. I said, no, I'm not. A spa is where you go to get better. I get to go have chemotherapy that's going to give me more days. This is awesome. And going, that's why I say going through breast cancer has only changed my life for the better. And it was the best year of my life because that switching that word have to, to get to, and everything you do in life changes how you live your life. I don't have to go work out after this. I get to go work out because I have the means to do it, the body and the mind to do it. So I'm hearing this choices. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you have an aggressive form of breast cancer, which to most people would. And, and you talked about the, the response you had, feeling numb in that moment. Um, and your mind or your spirit was sending you messages and you were tuning into those messages about the anxiety, but also the great, the gratitude. Um, so be anxious for nothing. That's, that's, a, that's an incredible phrase, but almost, I suppose, the the day-to-day version of that would be don't worry. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that's something you can try and chant to yourself sometimes, but it's whether you hear it. It's genuinely whether you hear it. And it sounds like you're, you're there referring to this. This is a choice that I make to hear this and to respond to it and to connect with it and to embody that. And you know what, Stephen? I spent that next year trying to prove God wrong, that there honestly are times in life that you that anxiety will help the situation and i to this day i haven't come up with one and i've spoken with people in the military about this do they feel that it serves them better to become anxious and they said oh god no it prevents you from thinking clearly Mm, and i've spoken to physicians and i've spoken to you know even people that have dire dire diseases that are going through horrific time Being anxious or worrying about something never helps the situation. And that don't, don't confuse that with not preparing. So if you're going to go through chemotherapy and you know that you're going to be, um, down and out and you're not going to be sick and you're going to be bedridden for quite a while and whatever, what do you do about that? You prepare the best way you know how. You get yourself physically prepared, mentally and emotionally as prepared as possible to go through that journey. And once you have prepared, you simply, and that's why you've got to pair the two. How do you not be anxious through gratitude? And 
I did not have a horrific bout with chemotherapy. Um, and so it's, it's hard for me when I do speak with cancer patients about this, but even if the one thing that you can be grateful for is hope, and we do live at a time that even stage four metastasized cancer patients can have hope that in itself being grateful for that one thing will help you much more so than being anxious about how you're going to be feeling. Hmm. And um, what, what, what else helped you? Uh, Cause you talked about um, cert, trying to test God to find out <laughs> what anxiety wouldn't help with, but what else helped along that, that, that process of, of recovering. Now, you, I, I understand you're now cancer-free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Uh, it was a mindset that, okay, this is going to be a, it's going to be a battle. They've told me I've got to go through chemo for a year and surgery. Okay, fine. So that's the bad news. Now let's get to work. And the work was, my oncologist said, you've got to stay strong. And so the, I had been retired from dancing for 30 years and I've never up to that point done anything, physical activity, exercise on a consistent basis. She says, pick something and do it. So that's when I got into Pilates and I have been religiously going to Pilates since then and much stronger because of it than I have been my previous 30 years. Um, diet, you know, um, I prepared myself. I actually am was healthier going through that year of chemotherapy than I was prior to that. Um, and then, like I said, I called it my chemo spa and any, and I told everyone around me, do not treat me like I'm sick. I am not sick. Even on days that I don't feel well, I'm not sick. Sick is when you have the flu. I don't have the flu. I have cancer cells in my boob that we need to kill with some really powerful stuff to go away. That's it. So the days that I don't feel well, that's okay. You can offer to bring me a cup of tea or something, but don't feel sorry for me because I'm not sick. Don't treat me like I'm sick. Um, when I went to my chemo spa, I had so many friends that wanted to come sit with me. I'm like, I don't want you to. Thank you so much. I'm using this as my time out. And so that's when I started working on my bucket list. That's when I started writing the book. That's when I started okay. developing a deck, a treatment for an urban nutcracker that I want to get produced. That's when I... That was my happy time. That was my time out that I gave myself those four hours, five hours I was in chemo. This is my time. This is my space. I'm going to do what I love to do. So I love that, that actually faced with something that could, could be terminal. You're actually creating the next level. You're, you're engaging in life. You're choosing to, to do something um, so, so was that the spark of the origin behind writing the book? Yes. Yeah. Um, because I had my writing a book was on my bucket list, but I was waiting to retire from coaching in order to start my bucket list. And so when I realized that I wasn't going to die from this breast cancer, but then I thought, you know what? None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We all have an expiration date. I have an expiration date in life. I just don't know when it is. Why am I waiting for anything? And that's, that is the part of the reason why I've entitled the book, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. Because 
What And dance, obviously, is a metaphor for whatever makes your heart sing. Why are you going to wait for tomorrow? You may not be here tomorrow. None of us may be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Don't waste one day not living your life fully. Um, and I can honestly say I've not had one day in four years that I have not lived life fully. Even the days that either I just felt like being sad, I gave myself permission to be sad. Don't be a victim, though. Don't blame anybody. Just do whatever you want to do. Stay in your jammies all day and read a good book or knit. That's okay. It's all right. And how did you choose the start of the book? Because it's it's quite unique in some ways. I, I think that sometimes you pick a book up and and you look at it and think, oh, I think there's a good message in here somewhere, but it might be hard work. And and yours isn't. It's it's very personal. Uh, some some sections leap out. Some for me, I had to reread a couple of times just to just to connect with the message because there's lots in there. It's quite it's part autobiographical. There's lots about your background and where you've come from, but there's so many messages for self help and for for leadership in there. How did you decide on on how you wanted to write it, the style of it, but also the the kind of key messages? What went in? That's a great question. Um, it was very important to me to have the book written in my voice. So it's a very easy read. It's very conversational. Um, and it was important for me to put some of my background in there so people knew why I've chosen to coach and lead this program the way I have. But um, about four months before the book was published, I got cold feet and I told um, my co-author, I said, I can't publish this book. And he said, why? And I said, because people are going to read it thinking they're going to glean all of this wisdom from a seven-time national gymnastics coach. And they're going to realize that most everything I've done in my career is very non-traditional, unorthodox for athletics. And they're going to realize I'm a total whack job. And he goes very seriously. His face was very serious. He goes, Miss Val. You are a whack job. That's why you have to write the book because you give all of us whack jobs to just be ourselves and not try to be somebody else or the stereotype of whatever profession we're in. I was like, okay, I'll write the book. And the most um, rewarding part for me from the book has been the people outside of athletics that have used the nuggets for their personal lives and their professional lives. Um, things such as I don't believe in perfection, perfection doesn't exist. So let's all stop putting ourselves on this pedestal of trying to be perfect today. And let's just focus on getting 1% better in something today. We can do that. That's achievable. Um, there are a lot of, that's what those are almost every chapter has a nugget like that, that you can apply to your daily life in anything you're doing, even, even as a student. You know, you don't have to have a job in order to do it. Yeah, I think that was that was the one thing that stood out for me. I th- I'd 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 say actually, there's nuggets on every page, and 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 maybe more, maybe every sentence, because what it doesn't necessarily do is conform to a book style where there's one thing, and I'm going to give you a process to work through that one thing, mm-hmm. and that's going to achieve outstanding success. As someone who 
who respects the complexity of life, someone who works with the whole human, that to me is was the joy of, of starting to read your book because there was loads in there and that I can cherry pick and I can connect with or I can reflect on saying, well, maybe that's not for me at this time in my life. There's lots that I can uh, get my teeth into. As, um, so, Thank yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that... He calls you a whack job <laughs> and got you got you writing to press pr- print. Thank um, you. There's one chapter in there that I'm um, helping athletes find their joy. Mm-hmm. Can tell me tell me more about? Uh, I mean, just the very title of that chapter, but tell me about that kind of principle because that will that will lead me on to some of your routines that you create, which I think just just reek joy. <laughs> well. You know, we all, when we watch children play in the playground, they have so much joy. They just, it comes from a place of enthusiasm. And I don't believe that any athlete, regardless of how old you are, 70, 80, 90 years old, um, wants to participate in sport without it being joyful for them. And we as parents and as coaches have seemed to feel that we need to strip the joy out of the process. Um, So that's something that I have felt very good about in my career here at UCLA is helping athletes find their joy. And the first way I do it is by helping them find their voice, their unique voice and realizing that you are unique. All of us are. There's never been another you that's ever been born and there never will be that's ever graced this earth. So you're here for a reason. The light that you feel inside of you is unique, different than any other person that's ever graced this planet and do what fuels that light and, and, and share that light in, in whatever you do. Um, and so as I was, one of the things that I, watched on TV that I just loved was in the last winter Olympics, the Netherlands earned more medals than any other country. And they, when they were speaking with the head of the Federation in the Netherlands, he said that when you watch our athletes, they compete from a place of joy. And he said in the Netherlands, they don't allow their children or they don't encourage them to keep score or win tally who wins or loses up until they're 13, 14 years old. So their mature athletes, their adult athletes, have had 13 and 14 years of just playing for the sake of sheer love for the sport. And that's what they, that's just normal for them. That's their default now. So um, I just feel like, you know, you watch the greatest of the great. You watch Kobe Bryant when he's in his zone, it's joyful. You watch a downhill skier, you watch Sean White, you know, skateboarder. Mm. It's like, he's having so much fun and it's, he's just beaming from the challenge of it and the joy that comes with that challenge. So you talked there about for the, for the gymnast to connect with what drives them and what's going to give them so much fun. Is that something that you encourage for them to co-create the the routines that you put together? Oh, yes. Yeah, I do. Uh, Some athletes are more adept at dance and choreography than others are, but um, 
I want them to feel comfortable and I want them to be challenged. So once again, it's a metaphor for life, right? Um, mm. And uh, in, I found out years and years and years and years and years ago, I connected the dots that if I gave them a character to be in their flow routines, they would embody that character and it would bring, bring out better movement quality in their movement. Because so many times with gymnasts, they're so flat and all they're doing is regurgitating the movement that their coach told them to do. The motivation is not for their movement is not coming from the music. It's coming from what they were told to do. And that's why you see so many gymnasts that aren't even on the beat. They're not even near the music. They're just like you hit go and they just go. They don't even listen to the music. So I tell our student athletes all the time, once you learn your routine, the motivation for how you move your body comes from the integration with the music. So, so can you give us an example? So the, the, the Caitlin O'Hashi routine that's just gone viral, 33 million views on YouTube. Um, it was one of those, it was one of those moments when, when I saw it that it, I didn't even know it was viral at that point, but I, but it was one of those sense of girls, girls, come and watch this, come and watch this. Um, the, what was what was the character? What was the embodiment? What what was the focus for for Caitlin? Was there was a character that that she uh, connected well, with? We knew it was going to be her last routine ever because she's a senior. But with with Caitlin's routine, her evolution into who she has become, who she is, who she has chosen to become, the young woman she has chosen to be, is so empowering. And so we wanted a very joyful routine that was celebrating her journey. And she also wanted to be, pay tribute to a very strong woman that had gone through abuse. And that was Tina Turner. Tina Turner. So okay. the routine, while it morphs into Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson and these other people, the real um, honor for her routine is to Tina Turner. And that's the beginning of her, of her music. And then from there, the second character is pure joy for the fact that her body healed enough for her to be able to continue to do, to do gymnastics, that she's gone through a lot of emotional work, mental work on how not to allow herself to be in abusive relationships on how she's dealt with a lot of the bullying, because even even now, even today, there are people on social media that are bullying her about her the size of her thighs in relationship to the rest of her body. They're just mean, mean-spirited people. And she's worked so well with being able to just let that roll off her back and not even think about those things. So she has... She didn't accidentally become a strong, confident, grateful, joyful woman. She chose it, and she's worked on it ever since she she got here. Uh, it's amazing to amazing to hear, and it was one of those sense of I'm showing this to my children, and I'm proud. I'm proud that there's another human out there that is is creating and you have been part of cre creating just two minutes of just, of just spark and fun and zing and energy expressiveness. It was a surprise at times, uh, 
power and spontaneity. There was, there was, there was definitely something in there that it felt like it was spontaneous. It was, it had that edge, uh, but I would imagine that's all designed. Uh, well, and you know what? It, it, it is. And what I hope your children see, or you can point out to them. And when you watch it again is the routine she does. One reason why it's gone viral. The, the main reason why is because it's relatable. People can relate to the music. They know the music and the yeah. dance moves. The choreography is basically kind of, you know, what you would do in a club. Um, so it's very relatable. The second part is it's joyful. But when you really look at it, the part that I love the most of her routine is the focus that she gets before she tumbles. Because her tumbling passes are very, very hard. Her first tumbling pass she does, which is a, a double layout in this position, but she splits her legs on the first flip. That, if you don't know how to maneuver your body, when you split your legs, it will stop your rotation. And so you will land very, very short on your ankles and crunch your ankles or you're just crumbled to the floor. And so her, I love watching the concentration on her face before she tumbles because she has such, she has mastered being able to have fun and joyful, connect with the audience and then this razor sharp steel focus of her tumbling passes. And that is, I think, what people aren't really realizing why, why they love the routine so much is because it's really, really hard. It's very, very difficult. That that was something that struck me around mastery, to be that comfortable with that level of excellence speaks to mastery and that you can then play with it such that you... Uh, are able to play and then focus and deliver. Um, right. It, it felt like it was breaking a genre. Uh, it felt like the Usain Bolt messing about before right. the 100 meters, uh, where before everyone had to be so serious and and I'm in tunnel vision throughout, as opposed to I, I'm free with this because I'm, I'm on top of my game. Right. And when you're on top of your game, right. And, you know, that's part of, I think that, for the most part, coaches have taken it way too far because I know so many of our elite athletes, they were t they would get in trouble if they smiled during training or talked to a friend or like a, a teammate because they weren't focused enough. And I understand it's a there's a fine line there because like I spoke about earlier, our sport is very, very difficult to master at a very young age. Part of having to master those skills at a young age is so that your body can do them easier. So you're not as fearful. Um, and it takes a razor sharp focus at a young age to be able to start mastering these skills. But I do believe that you can coach athletes where they can have fun with their teammates over here. And then you, you know, a minute before they're going to go up, you get them and you get them in the right frame of mind and you teach them, you teach them how to flip flop between that fun, I'm not saying joy, fun and focus because joy is a part of all of it. Mm. And there's one part of the routine where uh, she goes over into the far corner. Uh, I think we can see you uh -huh. watching. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was just so infectious to watch because 
you've got your hands on the mat. You're mm-hmm. sort of you're you're poised there watching, and I can see you smiling. But at the same time, your eyes were tightening with that focus of 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 really feeling like you're in it. But I could also see your shoulders moving and your head moving, and and you're it looks like you're flinching and connecting because you are almost in it yourself. Mm-hmm. How does it feel when you're watching your performers do do their thing i just uh you know i i'm a huge believer in energy transference of energy everything you know the law of attraction is putting it out there and um i feel that if a coach is uptight and rigid their athletes will play like that and so i work to get myself as i would be if i was competing and performing um and so I feel that internally, and I absolutely believe that that energy gets transposed to them. Is that the right word? Hmm. Transposed. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's the I, I was looking at the Pac-12 championships, another Michael Jackson routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the Bruins team they were like the Thriller ensemble behind mm-hmm. all performing the moves, mm-hmm. but that just spoke to the community and the kindred spirit and the connection of, of it is not, you're not out there on the mat. You're on, by your, by yourself. You're part no. of us. No. And I feel like I don't tell the athletes to do that. They love doing each other's routines, but the connectivity of it is, and the, and it, the truth of it is while Caitlin's the one that gets to perform this routine, I feel that they all feel it's all their routines. You know, they all do. It's, and we, they like to do each other's routines in the gym. So they're all part of this ensemble. And so Caitlin's going to go out and do this, this routine this time. But it's not Caitlin's sole uh, possession of that routine. And I often feel that the girls dancing in the background, and I know all, almost all other teams do this now. They do each other's routines on the sideline. It kind of bugs me. Because I feel like they're stealing the <laughs> limelight from the person that is on stage performing. But I can't tell you how many people have told me I, their favorite part about watching the routine is watching the girls in the back do the routine. Um, so that's one area where I'm just going to butt out and not have my way about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's inf- it is infectious. It is. Uh, it, if, if your purpose is to spread joy and create... Um, role models for society that's that's a lovely example of of that transmitting further mm-hmm. okay i'll let them do it <laughs> yeah go for it don't worry don't be I'll anxious about it um <laughs> let, let, <laughs> that was great. What, awesome. what um what's next for you miss val um i'm i'm kind of hoping you're going to say run for president but um <laughs> i What's what's next? Because I, I hear you're retiring. I am. I am retiring. Uh, and it, part of it came from that, you know, I don't know when my uh, expiration date is. There's so much I want to do. I love life. I love the challenges of life so much that I've gotten to a point here with my career at UCLA that I'm not learning much now. And I always tell our seniors whenever they get really sad about having to move on. Because especially in our sport, there's no professional gymnastics that they can go play. There's Cirque du Soleil and the circus, but okay. um, they get it's very hard for them because their identity has been that of a gymnast. And 
I always tell me you weren't born a gymnast. You were born with a really strong mind, a very powerful body and talent. And you chose the sport of gymnastics. So you could have chosen any other sport to be. And you would have been as equally successful. So now your gymnastics chapter is done. Now let's go start a new chapter in something else and take all that you've learned and go do something else with it. So I really feel that's the point that I'm at. Um, I don't need to win another championship to have to feel like I've had a successful career. I've achieved everything I want to achieve here. Um, and there's a lot that I want to do while I still have the vim and vigor to do it. And one is I want to produce an urban nutcracker that marries the X games with street sports, with the classics of Tchaikovsky. Um, I want to produce a Broadway show about the environment and get people to start waking up and taking responsibility for our planet. I want to get more involved with um, things that that uh, that hit me to my core. And that is, um, while I'm very involved with research, not just for breast cancer, but for other diseases, the thing that kind of is hits me the hardest is human trafficking. And I think the reason why it does is because I value so much the choices that I have in my life. And I can't imagine what it is like to be in a slave to someone and have all of your choices stripped, except how you think about things. You know, one of the best books written about this is Man's Search for Meaning by um, Victor yeah. Frankel. And mm. um, so I want to I want to get involved with how to help eradicate human trafficking. I want to uh, produce a course here at UCLA on John Wooden. I have been asked to do a lot of speaking and internationally as well. And I have to turn a lot of them down because of my day job. Um, mm. So there's a lot I want to do. A lot I want to do. And I want, like I said, I want to do it. I'm going to be 60 this summer. I want to do it while I still have the energy to, to do it all and the desire to do it all. Wow. <laughs> uh, so getting back to me being lazy, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you take some pasta and some wine and and some knitting and you go, girl. Um, that's going to be one hell of a next phase. There, There's me thinking that you do a little book chat and uh, wow. Um, but, but if there's one person that's that's... Uh, capable of creating urban nutcrackers, you're perfectly placed. Yes. Uh, you, you see how to fuse uh, those, those fields. Uh, yes. The, the fact that you have used your platform to, to show what, what is possible as opposed to, to suppress people. Why can't that be applied to human trafficking? That's, that's mm -hmm. incredible in itself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what what uh, what an amazing phase uh, ahead, and um, very exciting. Uh, and we're we're waiting with bated breath to see <laughs> how that goes. Um, pioneering in your day job, and, and about to pioneer even further for for humankind. By the sound of it, <laughs> I hope so. I do hope so. Yeah, I you know I talked with our student athletes. Uh, one of the last meetings we had was all about the law of attraction, what you put out in the universe comes back to you and um, had them write down their lists of wants, their lists of the things that they love to do, and then five goals that they wanted to achieve in the in the next three to five years. 
And one of the things that I wrote down was I want to have an international uh, presence and to be able to share all that I've learned about how to better coach our, our youth, boys and girls in all sports, um, just like we've talked about, without stripping the joy out of the process. And I want to be able to have an international voice and platform which to help to start creating this change. And um, so I told our student athletes that that was one of my goals. And this last meet two days ago, uh, there was a woman who uh, is from uh, Portland, Oregon. It doesn't really matter where she's from, but she, they had to travel mm. about three and a half hours to get to the meet in Seattle where we competed. And um, at the end of the meet, she said she just wanted her daughter to meet me. So as I was leaving the arena, I hear Miss Val, Miss Val. And there's this little girl and her mom. They were African-American. And so I went up and I met them. They gave me a gift and I got home and I read the card and the card said basically um thank you so much for the message that you're sharing not just to coaches but to parents as well and then the gift was a small little outline statue of africa and she said that she has shared my book with one of her friends who runs a girls school in africa and another friend who coaches sports for girls in africa and that my book is now over there, thanks to her spreading this message. And I was like, see, I put it out there in the universe and it already came back to me. This is awesome. Yeah. And if your publisher had bowed to your doubts, then that would have been uh, a real shame. I've no doubt that that the Brits will be connecting with you. And we have listeners from around the world. So, um, yeah, that's there's no doubt that that's going to happen for you. Um Miss, I've taken so much of your time up and I'm, I'm so appreciative. I, I feel genuinely humbled to have had the conversation with you. And I, um, I, I want to thank you for everything you've done and enlivening a sport that, that had been hurt. And as the, at the very least, um, congratulations on thank culturing you. a better way and pioneering that, uh, being a campaigner for it. Because doing it in just a closed room is just one thing, but... But, but campaigning and, and sharing that message with a wider platform is, is a, is, has been amazing to hear. Uh, you're, a, you're a real life spirit, Miss Val, so uh, thank you so much. Um, can I just ask you one last, one last question? Where, where can people find more? Where, if people want to connect with you and, you. Um, and get in touch, what can we, where can they connect yeah. with you? Thank you for asking that. Um, they can go on my website, officialmissval.com officialmissval.com or they can direct message me on social media um and i love getting feedback even critique i love it i just feel it's it's a avenue to grow and um i do have to say that i i want to thank you for doing this and for putting this out there and helping to spread this and um it's really it's very rewarding and fulfilling to be interviewed by someone that's really done their homework as you have. And so you, you, we had a lovely conversation about really meaty stuff and we were able to get into it quickly because you had done your homework. So thank you so much for that. I, I, this was exhilarating for me. It certainly wasn't hard work. It was just <laughs> hours of browsing and reading and watching YouTube clips and, 
Uh, I genuinely thought this is this could t- take weeks, and I'd I'd love to continue the conversation another Anytime. time and for us to for us to do that. Please. But thank you so much, Masfal. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed that interview just as much as I did recording it. So if you want to hear more from Miss Fowl, then you can follow her on Twitter at official Miss Fowl. Her website's also officialmissfowl.com. And you can also follow her on Instagram at Miss Val Condos. So a quick feature of two of our speakers for the Supporting Champions Conference. First up is Tim Harper, who you would have met and heard his interview in episode 24 of the Supporting Champions podcast. Uh, So Tim is a social enterprise leader uh, where he is very much trying to support the performing athlete in disadvantaged communities, particularly in sub-Sahara. And Tim is going to challenge our delegates and attendees to problem solve for those particular underdogs. And so he's going to set us a number of key challenges to inspire us and to get us thinking differently about performance. 